Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and thanks for joining me for another week of the Catholic Light podcast. On today's episode, we'll focus on Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 748, which says that the reason for the church's existence is simply to reflect the light, the beauty, the truth, the goodness, the teachings of Jesus Christ. So the church exists simply to hand on Christ. We'll focus specifically on the teaching of the Eucharist, the source and summit of the Christian life. On today's episode, we'll talk a little bit about the theology of the Eucharist, but then develop that further in a future episode. So let's start by reading Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 748. About halfway through the paragraph, it reads, the article of faith about the church depends entirely on the articles concerning Christ Jesus. The church has no other light than Christ's. According to a favorite image of the church fathers, the church is like the moon, all its light reflected from the sun. So the church exists solely for Christ. There should be no other motives, ambitions, raison d'etre. Simply, the, the church exists to know and love Christ and to help others, all others, whether they're in the church, out of the church, all people of the world, Uh, It's the church's job to help others know and love Christ as well. The church has been tasked with faithfully handing on the truth entrusted to her. So recall from one of our earliest episodes, this image or this analogy of the font of divine revelation, what one of my students dubbed the birdbath of faith. So picture this fountain with two streams coming out of it. One represents the sacred scriptures, the Bible, the written word of God. The other stream represents sacred tradition, the oral preaching of the apostles handed down in the church from bishop to bishop to bishop, so the spoken word of God. And then it's the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, who receives, who catches, who holds that water in the fountain, or who receives that divine revelation, God revealing himself, and then over time faithfully hands it on all the while interpreting it by the power of the Holy Spirit, the the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of the scriptures and the preaching of the apostles. There are so many ways where the church as moon, so as this this, uh, paragraph from the catechism uses the analogy of moon reflecting the sun. So, so many ways that the church as moon can reflect the light of Christ as sun. She can hand on the truth in formal settings, So through Catholic schools, through religious education programs, through RCIA, through Bible studies, she administers the sacraments. So she helps people enter into holy matrimony through weddings. Uh, She brings baptism about mass, confession. Also, the church has so many ministries we see across parishes, across the world. So everything from aid for friends, where people bring meals to those who are homebound, possibly sick, don't have meals or can't provide meals for themselves. We see youth and young adult ministries. We see a number of different retreats put on. There's one ministry, one act, uh, one job of the church that stands out above the rest, and that's bringing the Eucharist to God's people. So as the moon, she reflects the light of the sun, of Christ himself, by bringing the people, Christ himself, in the Eucharist. 
Paragraph 1324 of the Catechism famously says that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. It reads, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries, so all ministries of the church, and works of the apostolate, are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself, our Pash. So the Eucharist is the source, the beginning, and the summit, the culmination of the Christian life. This famous line, the Eucharist being the source and summit of the Christian life, was articulated in Lumen Gentium, one of the documents of Vatican II. If you're following along in your catechism, you can look at the footnote, uh, one of the footnotes contained in this paragraph, footnote 136, and you'll see um, this abbreviation LG. Again, recall from earlier episodes, if you're not sure what LG stands for, you can go to the abbreviations page in the back of the catechism. So if you're using this big green study catechism, it's page 861, and you'll see it stands for Lumen Gentium. There's another footnote uh, used in this paragraph, footnote 137. Again, if you look at the bottom, it refers to PO5. So PO paragraph 5, another Vatican II document. Again, go to the abbreviations uh, in the back of the catechism. You'll see it stands for Presbyterorum Ordinis. And, you know, if you're not sure what Lumen Gentium is, what Presbyterorum Ordinis is, you could always Google these documents um, for an overview and or go to vatican.va if you want to read the full document online. So we'll address the theology of the Eucharist in another episode more fully. But for now, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our Christian life. So the usher ministry does not matter if there's no Eucharist to receive at Mass. Designer bag bingo doesn't matter if the local Catholic school doesn't offer its students Jesus in the Eucharist at its school masses. You may be familiar with uh, this super depressing study that was done a few years ago in 2019 by the Pew Research Center. It found that about 7 out of 10 Catholics, so 69% of all Catholics who were surveyed, believe the Eucharist is a symbol of Christ's presence and not that the bread and wine actually become his body and blood with the prayers of consecration. So this Pew Research study found that only about 30% of Catholics believe that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ through the prayers of consecration at Mass. Again, we'll chat through the theology of the Eucharist in a more complete way in another episode, but for now, let's say this. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, dubbed the Bread of Life Discourse, Christ says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood a number of times. A number of times then his followers question him, saying, this saying is hard. Who can accept it? Until finally, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 66. So my students were always fascinated by that. Whoa, John 666, isn't that the number of the devil? And that's where everybody leaves Jesus? Yes, was this coincidental? Things are usually not coincidental with the Lord, but maybe coincidentally in John 6, 66, uh, the scriptures say that some of his disciples left and no longer followed him. So Jesus repeats again and again, eat my flesh, drink my blood. You do not have life within you unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And this saying is very difficult, very strange. And so a number of people 
leave understanding what Christ is actually claiming and no longer follow him. So this is a bold teaching, the teaching that bread and wine, though continuing under the appearances of bread and wine, actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It was bold from the beginning, so bold that a number of people stopped following Jesus, and the church has continued to boldly proclaim this teaching for more than 2,000 years. Apparently, though, we're not clearly and compellingly proclaiming it because many Catholics either don't understand or don't believe this teaching anymore. So on the heels of the survey, the U.S. bishops launched a three-year Eucharistic revival, which will culminate with the National Eucharistic Congress in 2024 in Indianapolis. It started with Eucharistic processions, adoration, and prayer around the country on the Feast of Corpus Christi in June of 2022. And the Congress emphasizes getting parishes, resources to increase understanding of what the Eucharist really means. About 10 years ago, maybe longer at this point, there were two awesome priests of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia who approached the Archbishop at the time and pitched a plan to temporarily, let's say, mute, not quite shut down, but um, just kind of quiet the activities of all parish ministries and turn the focus of those ministries the focus of the parish, to the Eucharist. So they said, you know, rather than focusing on, again, aid for friends, youth and young adult ministries, visiting the homebound, let's focus these groups and the entire parish on adoration, catechesis on the Eucharist, and the reception of Holy Communion. Okay, let's take these groups and point them all back to the Eucharist, the source and summit of our faith. So these two men, they saw the primacy of the Eucharist above all else. While all of these ministries did really good things and served real needs in the church and the world, they all took a backseat to the Eucharist, again, the source and summit of the Christian life. And these men saw a need to place it front and center before the people of God in a simple and compelling way. Man, were they men ahead of their time. I recently watched uh, the Big Short, this movie about some of the key players in the housing market crisis in 2008. And it chronicles, again, a number of people, but in particular, Dr. Michael Burry, who saw this crash coming about two years before it happened. So he was severely ridiculed in 2006, you know, what do you think's going to happen? Like, there's no bubble. Uh, the housing market is solid. And then two years later, he's being praised in 2008 for, wow, you really saw this coming in a big way. So you know you're a Catholic nerd when you're watching a movie filled with A-list actors. So Christian Bale was in this, Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, Marissa Tomei, Brad Pitt. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking about how it correlates to our need for a revival in our understanding of the Eucharist. I'm thinking of these two priests who saw years and years ago the need to turn our attention back to the Eucharist. They saw coming, essentially, uh, these Pew Research results. Um, so let's take a page from these priest books and quiet some of the good but ancillary ministries and missions in our lives and focus on the Eucharist this week. So first, I invite us to take five to ten minutes at some point this week to study up a bit on the Eucharist. I've attached in the show notes uh, links to two videos, both from Bishop Robert Barron, whom I've referenced a number of times from the Word on Fire Ministries. In the first video, it's about 10, 11 minutes, 
and uh, he unpacks a bit the theology of the Eucharist. The second video then is more lengthy. It's a little over an hour where he goes more extensively through the theology of the Eucharist. So I invite you to listen to one or both of those videos. And then secondly, let's pick one Eucharistic activity this week in which to participate. So if you have a local adoration chapel, stop by, again, five to ten minutes, and just sit before Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, if you don't have adoration available, maybe go, or maybe even better, go to daily Mass and receive Jesus in the Eucharist if you're disposed to do so. Uh, receive Jesus in the Eucharist one extra time this week. If you're not disposed to receive him in the Eucharist, you can still go to daily Mass and participate in the Mass without receiving him in the Eucharist. So if this is the source and summit of our Christian life, it will not only nourish us individually, but it will nourish and sustain all of those other ministries which are part of the Christian life as well. Lord, please help us to put you in the Eucharist, you who are the source and summit of our Christian life, back at the center of our lives. Help us to understand this mysterious teaching that you allow the bread and wine to become your body and blood, soul and divinity, so as to nourish us as individuals, as a church, and as a world. We thank you for coming to us in this humble way, and we pray once again for the grace to receive you well. All right, we'll now take a brief break and then return to read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 748 through 780. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 748 through 780 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Article 9, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Christ is the light of humanity, and it is, accordingly, the heartfelt desire of the Sacred Council, being gathered together in the Holy Spirit, that, by proclaiming his gospel to every creature, it may bring to all men that light of Christ which shines out visibly from the Church. These words open the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution on the Church. By choosing the starting point, the Church demonstrates that the article of faith about the Church depends entirely on the articles concerning Christ Jesus. The Church has no other light than Christ. According to a favorite image of the Church Fathers, the Church is like the moon, all its light reflected from the sun. The article concerning the Church also depends entirely on the article about the Holy Spirit, which immediately precedes it. Indeed, having shown that the Spirit is the source and giver of all holiness, we now confess that it is he who has endowed the Church with holiness. The Church is, in a phrase used by the Fathers, the place where the Spirit flourishes. To believe that the Church is holy and Catholic, and that she is one and apostolic, as the Nicene Creed adds, is inseparable from belief in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the Apostles' Creed, we profess one holy Church— credo ecclesiam, and not to believe in the church, so as not to confuse God with his works and to attribute clearly to God's goodness all the gifts he has bestowed on his church. Paragraph 1, the church in God's plan, names and images of the church. The word church, Latin ecclesia, from the Greek ekkalein, to call out of, means a convocation or an assembly. It designates the assemblies of the people, usually for a religious purpose. 
Ecclesia is used frequently in the Greek Old Testament for the assembly of the chosen people before God. Above all, for their assembly on Mount Sinai, where Israel received the law and was established by God as his holy people. By calling itself church, the first community of Christian believers recognized itself as heir to that assembly. In the church, God is calling together his people from all the ends of the earth. The equivalent Greek term, Kyriake, from which the English word church and the German kirka are derived, means what belongs to the Lord. In Christian usage, the word church designates the liturgical assembly, but also the local community or the whole universal community of believers. These three meanings are inseparable. The church is the people that God gathers in the whole world. She exists in local communities and is made real as a liturgical, above all, a Eucharistic assembly. She draws her life from the word and the body of Christ, and so herself becomes Christ's body. Symbols of the church. In scripture, we find a host of interrelated images and figures through which Revelation speaks of the inexhaustible mystery of the church. The images taken from the Old Testament are variations on a profound theme, the people of God. In the New Testament, all these images find a new center because Christ has become the head of this people, which henceforth is his body. Around this center are grouped images taken from the life of the shepherd or from cultivation of the land, from the art of building, or from family life and marriage. The church is accordingly a sheepfold, the sole and necessary gateway to which is Christ. It is also the flock of which God himself foretold that he would be the shepherd, and whose sheep, even though governed by human shepherds, are unfailingly nourished and led by Christ himself, the good shepherd and prince of shepherds who gave his life for his sheep. The church is a cultivated field, the tillage of God. On that land, the ancient olive tree grows, whose holy roots were the prophets and in which the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles has been brought about and will be brought about again. That land, like a choice vineyard, has been planted by the heavenly cultivator. Yet the true vine is Christ, who gives life and fruitfulness to the branches. That is, to us, who through the church remain in Christ, without whom we can do nothing. Often, too, the church is called the building of God. The Lord compared himself to the stone which the builders rejected, but which was made into the cornerstone. On this foundation, the church is built by the apostles, and from it, the church receives solidity and unity. This edifice has many names to describe it. The house of God in which his family dwells, the household of God in the spirit, the dwelling place of God among men, and especially the holy temple. This temple, symbolized in places of worship built out of stone, is praised by the fathers, and not without reason, is compared in the liturgy to the holy city, the New Jerusalem. As living stones, we here on earth are built into it. It is this holy city that is seen by John as it comes down out of heaven from God when the world is made anew, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. The church further, which is called that Jerusalem which is above and our mother, is described as the spotless spouse of the spotless lamb. It is she whom Christ loved and for whom he delivered himself up that he might sanctify her. It is she whom he unites to himself by an unbreakable alliance and whom he constantly nourishes and cherishes. The church's origin, foundation, and mission. We begin our investigation of the church's mystery by meditating on her origin in the Holy Trinity's plan and her progressive realization in history. A plan born in the Father's heart. 
the eternal father, in accordance with the utterly gratuitous and mysterious design of his wisdom and goodness, created the whole universe and chose to raise up men to share in his own divine life, to which he calls all men in his son. The father determined to call together in a holy church those who should believe in Christ. This family of God is gradually formed and takes shape during the stages of human history in keeping with the father's plan. In fact, already present in figure at the beginning of the world, this church was prepared in marvelous fashion in the history of the people of Israel and the old alliance. Established in this last age of the world and made manifest in the outpouring of the Spirit, it will be brought to glorious completion at the end of time. The church foreshadowed from the world's beginning. Christians of the first centuries said the world was created for the sake of the church. God created the world for the sake of communion with his divine life, a communion brought about by the convocation of men in Christ, and this convocation is the church. The church is the goal of all things, and God permitted such painful upheavals as the angels fall and man's sin only as occasions and means for displaying all the power of his arm and the whole measure of the love he wanted to give the world. Just as God's will is creation and is called the world, so his intention is the salvation of men and it is called the church. The church prepared for in the old covenant. The gathering together of the people of God began at the moment when sin destroyed the communion of men with God and that of men among themselves. The gathering together of the church is, as it were, God's reaction to the chaos provoked by sin. This reunification is achieved secretly in the heart of all peoples. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to God. The remote preparation for this gathering together of the people of God begins when he calls Abraham and promises that he will become the father of a great people. Its immediate preparation begins with Israel's election as the people of God. By this election, Israel is to be the sign of the future gathering of all nations. But the prophets accuse Israel of breaking the covenant and behaving like a prostitute. They announce a new and eternal covenant. Christ instituted this new covenant. The church instituted by Christ Jesus. It was the son's task to accomplish the father's plan of salvation in the fullness of time. Its accomplishment was the reason for his being sent. The Lord Jesus inaugurated his church by preaching the good news, that is, the coming of the reign of God, promised over the ages in the scriptures. To fulfill the father's will, Christ ushered in the kingdom of heaven on earth. The church is the reign of Christ already present in mystery. This kingdom shines out before men in the word, in the works, and in the presence of Christ. To welcome Jesus' word is to welcome the kingdom itself. The seed and beginning of the kingdom are the little flock of those whom Jesus came to gather around him, the flock whose shepherd he is. They form Jesus' true family. To those whom he thus gathered around him, he taught a new way of acting and a prayer of their own. The Lord Jesus endowed his community with a structure that will remain until the kingdom is fully achieved. Before all else, there is the choice of the twelve with Peter as their head. Representing the twelve tribes of Israel, they are the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. The twelve and the other disciples share in Christ's mission and his power, but also in his lot. By all his actions, Christ prepares and builds his church. The church is born primarily of Christ's total self-giving for our salvation, anticipated in the institution of the Eucharist and fulfilled on the cross. The origin and growth of the church are symbolized by the blood and water which flowed from the open side of the crucified Jesus. 
for it was from the side of Christ as he slept the sleep of death upon the cross that there came forth the wondrous sacrament of the whole church. As Eve was formed from the sleeping Adam's side, so the church was born from the pierced heart of Christ hanging dead on the cross. The church revealed by the Holy Spirit. When the work which the Father gave the Son to do on earth was accomplished, the Holy Spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost in order that he might continually sanctify the church. Then the church was openly displayed to the crowds and the spread of the gospel among the nations through preaching was begun. As the convocation of all men for salvation, the church in her very nature is missionary, sent by Christ to all the nations to make disciples of them. So that she can fulfill her mission, the Holy Spirit bestows upon the church varied hierarchic and charismatic gifts, and in this way directs her. Henceforward, the church, endowed with the gifts of her founder and faithfully observing his precepts of charity, humility, and self-denial, receives the mission of proclaiming and establishing among all peoples the kingdom of Christ and of God, and she is on earth the seed and the beginning of that kingdom. The Church Perfected in Glory the church will receive its perfection only in the glory of heaven at the time of Christ's glorious return. Until that day, the church progresses on her pilgrimage amidst this world's persecutions and God's consolations. Here below, she knows that she is an exile far from the Lord and longs for the full coming of the kingdom when she will be united in glory with her king. The church, and through her the world, will not be perfected in glory without great trials. Only then will all the just from the time of Adam from Abel, the just one, to the last of the elect, be gathered together in the universal church in the Father's presence. The mystery of the church. The church is in history, but at the same time she transcends it. It is only with the eyes of faith that one can see her in her visible reality and at the same time in her spiritual reality as the bearer of divine life. The church, both visible and spiritual. The one mediator, Christ, establish and ever sustains here on earth his holy church, the community of faith, hope, and charity as a visible organization through which he communicates truth and grace to all men. Their church is at the same time a society structured with hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ, the visible society and the spiritual community, the earthly church and the church endowed with heavenly riches. These dimensions together constitute one complex reality which comes together from a human and a divine element. The church is essentially both human and divine, visible but endowed with invisible realities, zealous in action and dedicated to contemplation, present in the world but as a pilgrim, so constituted that in her the human is directed toward and subordinated to the divine, the visible to the invisible, action to contemplation, and this present world to that city yet to come, the object of our quest. O humility, O sublimity, both tabernacle of cedar and sanctuary of God, earthly dwelling and celestial palace, house of clay and royal hall, body of death and temple of light, and at last both object of scorn to the proud and bride of Christ. She is black but beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, for even if the labor and pain of her long exile may have discolored her, yet heaven's beauty has adorned her. The Church, Mystery of Man's Union with God. It is in the Church that Christ fulfills and reveals his own mystery as the purpose of God's plan, to unite all things in him. St. Paul calls the nuptial union of Christ and the Church a great mystery. Because she is united to Christ as to her bridegroom, she becomes a mystery in her turn. Contemplating this mystery in her, Paul exclaims, 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the church, this communion of men with God, in the love that never ends, is the purpose which governs everything in her that is a sacramental means tied to this passing world. The church's structure is totally ordered to the holiness of Christ's members. And holiness is measured according to the great mystery in which the bride responds with the gift of love to the gift of the bridegroom. Mary goes before us all in the holiness that is the church's mystery as the bride without spot or wrinkle. This is why the Marian dimension of the church precedes the Petrine, the universal sacrament of salvation. The Greek word mysterion was translated into Latin by two terms, mysterium and sacramentum. In later usage, the term sacramentum emphasizes the visible sign of the hidden reality of salvation, which was indicated by the term mysterium. In this sense, Christ himself is the mystery of salvation, for there is no other mystery of God except Christ. The saving work of his holy and sanctifying humanity is the sacrament of salvation, which is revealed and active in the church's sacraments, which the Eastern churches also call the holy mysteries. The seven sacraments are the signs and instruments by which the Holy Spirit spreads the grace of Christ the head throughout the church, which is his body. The church then both contains and communicates the invisible grace she signifies. It is in this analogical sense that the church is called a sacrament. The church in Christ is like a sacrament, a sign and instrument that is of communion with God and of unity among all men. The church's first purpose is to be the sacrament of the inner union of men with God. Because men's communion with one another is rooted in that union with God, the church is also the sacrament of the unity of the human race. In her, this unity is already begun, since she gathers men from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues. At the same time, the church is the sign and instrument of the full realization of the unity yet to come. As sacrament, the church is Christ's instrument. She is taken up by him also as the instrument for the salvation of all, the universal sacrament of salvation, by which Christ is at once manifesting and actualizing the mystery of God's love for men. The church is the visible plan of God's love for humanity, because God desires that the whole human race may become one people of God, form one body of Christ, and be built up into one temple of the Holy Spirit. In brief, the word church means convocation. It designates the assembly of those whom God's word convokes, for example, gathers together to form the people of God, and who themselves, nourished with the body of Christ, become the body of Christ. The church is both the means and the goal of God's plan, prefigured in creation, prepared for in the old covenant, founded by the words and actions of Jesus Christ, fulfilled by his redeeming cross and his resurrection. The church has been manifested as the mystery of salvation by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. She will be perfected in the glory of heaven as the assembly of all the redeemed of the earth. The church is both visible and spiritual, a hierarchical society and the mystical body of Christ. She is one, yet formed of two components, human and divine. That is her mystery, which only faith can accept. The church in this world is the sacrament of salvation, the sign and the instrument of the communion of God and men. This brings us to the end of our episode of Catholic Light. Thanks so much for joining me this week. Between this week and next week, please consider joining me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast and share, if you feel comfortable, how are you taking a step closer this week to Jesus in the Eucharist? So what's something you would like to do this week to place the Eucharist or recall that the Eucharist is the source and summit 
of the Christian life. Please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.